0: Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to have Sam Garland joining us. Thanks, Sam, for taking the time. Um, I wonder if just before we start getting into a bit of a conversation, if you could just explain to the listeners what you do at PwC, and we might just break that down a little bit. Is that okay?
1: Of course. Thanks, Chris, and thanks for having me along. Um, So I'm a partner based in Melbourne, um, but my kind of work background, I suppose, is I'm the banking leader for PwC. So that means um almost all of my client focus is with the banking sector and um and people that work at banks. And my kind of technical background started and continues to be um in financial statement and regulatory audit. So I'm an auditor by trade um, and also a fair amount of work around kind of risk management and governance, which outside of the, the audit sphere um, for that. So auditor by trade and focused on the, the banking industry in particular.
0: Okay, great. And and where does assurance come into your role or does that not come into your role?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, from a uh, structure standpoint, um, a firm like ours and PwC, we have a kind of practice area, a business of the firm called Assurance. Um, and so within Assurance, we have audit, probably more of the things that traditionally um, listeners might think of as um, Professional services firms, and then also within assurance would be what we ha- we call our trust and risk business, so that would be things like technology assurance, you know controls assurance, transformation assurance, and you know we might get into what what we mean by assurance more broadly, um, but it's the part of the business that audit and other um, services connected to kind of trust and um, giving people objective viewpoints lives.
0: How, does, how do you see uh, culture, I suppose, how does that correlate to assurance? Is there, a, is there an equation there somehow or how does that work?
1: I think that personally it's a, a passion of mine that this all ends up really being about human beings um, and any question of ethics Um or assurance um, comes down to the collection of um, actions that human beings and judgments that human beings have formed, and so I think con- culture's fundamental to that. Um, and so, you know, as we've talked about previously, Chris, we've spent a lot of time thinking about the cultural dimension of providing assurance, be that an audit or other um, kind of types of assurance, um, and we've concluded <laughs> that that really is fundamental and. You know, without labouring the point to whoever's listening mm. in in their world, you know, everybody knows in their heart, I think, that the intellectual answer to a question or what you should do is one part. But the kind of adaptive cultural component of getting it done is, if not more important, it's definitely as important.
0: So... When you look at that and the relevance and the importance of a a culture to be able to live up to the expectations, both from a, a regulatory perspective, but also from a customer perspective, from a you know from the employees perspective to have that culture. What what do you think are the key elements where I don't want to say that organizations fall short, but the key elements that continue to be challenging? for organisations more broadly that would actually hinder, um, you know, effective behaviour that
1: sort of, mm. you know, yeah. you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> yeah, look, I and, you know, perhaps I'll probably frame it in the context of where we've seen real kind of progress or benefit from having examined that yeah. kind of question of culture. Um, because we, you know, and we've, we've spoken publicly about this in our transparency reporting, um, if we go back, ah, probably a year, two years or so ago, we was we were kind of facing the question of, you know, we know we do a good job, and we've looked a lot at the kind of technical side of how we get a job done, be that in audit or the broader assurance part of our business. Um, but we probably feel like when we think about our priorities, and those include, of course, doing a quality audit or being a quality assurance practitioner, but it also includes are people being well, you know, me being well, it includes changing and innovating. It includes, you know, the commercial side of it and client service, you know, a whole kind of plethora of objectives. We hadn't gone really deep on the question of where does culture fit into this? Like, does our culture kind of enable us or hold us back? And in which areas is that true? And so we, took the decision, and I think this is something that um, is you know, either hindering or is a bit massive opportunity um, for organisations, to really do the work of saying, well, firstly, what actually is our culture? And there's something amazingly powerful about just doing the work and talking about who you are as an organisation, your personality, if you like. And so we you know, we surveyed their entire business. We had an amazing response rate. We had workshops with everybody at every different grade and demographics, etc., and looked at a lot of data to really say, well, what is our actual kind of, you know, dominate dominant culture? Obviously, there'll be nuances within that. And said to ourselves, well, based on that, so based on those attributes of our culture, our traits, are those helping us? And where are they helping us achieve objectives around quality, around challenging clients, around commercials, well-being, and where might they hinder us? So it's a a neutral view of yourself. And so to answer your question, the first thing for me, Chris, I'm keen to kind of get your reflections on it, is there's something really powerful about just a fearless, honest inventory of who you are as an organization and how that maps to what you're trying to achieve. It's not negative. It's not overtly a positive as an objective. It's just very kind of honest <laughs> and reflective. Exactly. And it's an amazing, we found it's very galvanizing for people when you talk about it, because people see their own self in that, you know, it's not a hundred percent resonant with each person, but you'll find some resonance and, Perhaps it'd be useful to give an example just to unpack that a, a bit more. But we found one of the um, dominant traits in our business, we, we named them all, of the seven. One of them was, you can count on me. That's what we named it. Yeah. And so it was this strong trait in a human-based service organization that we want to be, as individuals, relied upon. We want to be a safe pair of hands. We're very driven to be that for other people. We serve people. That's kind of at our core. So what are the positives of that? Like we're phenomenally committed to getting stuff done for clients, for each other. We don't want to let people down. We take a lot of accountability for the quality of what comes out of what we do. But there's also shade to it. There's no question of that when it's at extremes, right? Like any strength overplayed, which is we probably don't really want to put our hand up and ask for help as much because we want to be seen as the safe. Yes. pair of hands, yes. we we might ask for help quite late in a process when we yes. see the point that it's going to compromise the other things that are important to us because we're not going to get it done properly. Yes. But we might not ask as early or we might not be willing to say we don't know something or, you know, just reveal some kind of
0: vulnerability. T- humility
1: yes. and vulnerability. Yes. Exactly yes. right. Yes. And for me, I, I don't know what your thoughts are, but to me that's just so rich from an ethics and speaking up and other standpoint. Um, is you really have to understand that about yourself to then spot it when it's playing out and think about how you can kind of make the most of it but also control for it in the extreme.
0: But then you also do need a, a psychologically safe environment, having recognised that in yourself, that you're then able to act on that without any fear of, you know, being called unprepared or, or labelled anything mm. else that might stick with you.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Ab- yeah, absolutely right. And I think, you know, I... I I feel that, you know, in, in, you know, perhaps it's a corporate thing, but I'm not sure it is. It's maybe just a human thing, which is, you know, this topic of psychological safety, it's an easy couple of words to say, but when you start to explore how people feel and, you know, this culture work we did is a great, a great window into that. And we're very lucky to be involved in it in many respects. It's so much of it comes back to, Safety and psychological safety. Mm. And you know, so for us, you know, what so what do we do with that work? We then said, well, based on all of that analysis that we've done, what are three really practical behaviors that we should be encouraging ourselves, each other, holding myself accountable to, to kind of exhibit to try and make the most of our culture, but also not let it become a negative in extremis and the, re- the rationale for that there's, there's a methodology if you like around it which is you know you can't concentrate on changing more than three things it's kind of yeah. we'll just overload the place it's very difficult to think your way into a new way of acting so the intellectual thing I can sit here and go we must be more safe but mm. yes true but that's very different from the day-to-day experience mm-hmm. everything else so if you focus on behaviors you can the, the the saying goes you can act your way into a new way of thinking so you're not trying to change your culture who you are you're trying to kind of influence behavior and so one of you know, our behaviors are very very safety i think there's a lot of psychological safety in that so there are three the, the first of those is around um choosing courage over comfort in difficult conversations. so that's about you know bravery In conversations that you know you need to have. And it's not to say that's easy. And there's a lot behind that in terms of how we're helping people feel confident Mm. doing it. The second is around sharing stories of humility and asking open questions. And if you, I know you do, but if if others have read any of Edmondson's stuff on psychological safety, there's a huge part of that around, you know, setting, inviting participation by showing your own humility. Yeah. and asking questions to help others reveal it. And then the third one for us was around championing realism. And that really comes to, you know, not just saying yes and getting very kind of practical about the implications of decisions and how they're going to play out. Because we saw that, you know, going back to the trait, for example, if you can on me as being an area where we took a lot of cost onto ourselves as individuals because of our desire to fulfil had what we thought people mm-hmm. wanted from us, and realism just felt very, um, very powerful as a concept, as a result.
0: And and well done, well done. I, I yeah, I like those three. I wonder too. Once you've articulated that, and and you've given you know not permission, but you you've said these are the kind of behaviours we want to see acted on. What is the process then around a the sense of accountability or acknowledgement or, um, you know, benefit recognition of what that looks like? The growth, mm. how does that work?
1: Mm. Yeah, the bit that, if I'm honest, I'm always the worst at on these things. I come up with a great list of recommendations, but I never have to implement them. It's the, yeah, you yeah. Know. Um, but look, th- there's um, the approach we're taking to that, and it's still, it is still. You know, it's not early days, but it's certainly still kind of at the start of a, a long path there, I'm sure, um, is I've, as a kind of formal component to that. And so, for example, um, those behaviours are being embedded in how we recruit people. So I did an interview last week for some people and we were talking to them about, give me an example of when you've had to have a courageous conversation or talk to me about how you would challenge a partner who was asking you to do something that was unrealistic to get done in a week. Like, how would you work through that? We're putting it into you know, our annual performance objective setting process, et cetera. There's lots of kind of formal stuff yeah. that we're doing, which you would expect. The informal stuff is the kind of magic really, because those are the signals that everyone really picks up. Like we could change the the rest very easy, right? And so if I give you just one really kind of practical example of, you know, where we're trying to do that is that the leaders, the kind of formally appointed leaders, if you like, um, within the business being very, um, very um, deliberate and reflective about the way we communicate, And so, I have this personal kind of example that I always go back to, which is we so often talk about and celebrate and publicize success. So, we've done a great job. Congratulations. Well done, team. We recognize the team. And that's, let's face it, blooming important. You want to recognize people and you want to thank people and all the rest of it. But, you know, failure or, you know, imperfection is kind of, therefore, not very visible and as a result you can get create an environment where people start to believe that the only outcome that is tolerated is perfection
0: yeah.
1: or success yeah. and that's just utterly unrealistic I mean however many religions around the world and psychologists would say like set yourself the target of perfection and set yourself at certain failure like it. And so it's this whole, view, it certainly is. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yes. So, you know, we've been very mindful of now just not only talking about successes and sometimes talking about, you know, not saying great news, everybody. Someone had a disastrous week, but saying, you know, I want to reflect today on this that happened. You know, the team did everything right. There was lots to learn. Here's something we learned. And it feels basic, right? But you start to see those messages. And I've noticed it. And it's you can feel the just comfort levels increasing with the idea, as we should be, that we're safe. So that's one really practical thing. The other thing is just the power of informal leaders. So not the official appointed leaders. So understanding who the people are within groups, within teams that have a huge amount of influence. So even though their role might not be defined as such, they're actually the real power of change. Mm. And so we've done a lot of work to try and work out where those people sit and being very open-minded about who those people are and making sure that they are extra equipped, you know, extra engaged in this process so they feel part of it and are able to tell each other and us what needs to change but also our champions of the the change that we want to do now—that's a, you know, a, not a straightforward process um, to identify those people, but it makes a huge difference. I think
0: there is going to be a real shift in the way we do work and who does what and who's capable and who needs to be reskilled and and whatnot. And uh, it's such an area of uncertainty. And I, I just think about how is that going to be tackled from a culture perspective, where people are want a, a sense of confidence and assurance that mm. they're going to remain employed or employable and, and how do leaders articulate that? I, I, I think that, that that's an emerging area that I see as, as um, complex, I guess. And yeah, that,
1: can I add something into that as well, yeah. which would be that in the context of humility, I think you'll have 90% of leaders who won't who feel similar levels of uncertainty or... Yeah,
0: yeah I think yeah. so too. And, and how much do they articulate that though?
1: Correct. You know,
0: how, how, is that vulnerability saying I'm scared as well? <laughs> I don't know. Is that called not being a good leader? So it's, it's you know, these are really nuanced areas that I think leaders having to work in business now and deal with this kind of complexity, um, you know, it's, it's
1: definite upskilling For everyone, I think. Uh, Yeah, you're right. You know, you don't want to... I often think it, you know, is being really... Is being this level of honest just making me appear quite flawed (laughs) or quite weak? Like, do people need more strength from me or more confidence from me? Or
0: be better bullshitters,
1: you know? Yeah. We need need positivity or whatever. You know, it's not all negative, obviously. But I think as well... Coming back to the the hour um, three behaviours, not to kind of promote them in a um, in no, in no, that I sense, love them. but I think it was so. I'll tell an interesting story. I was on a you know we have these global webcast thingies where we listen in to partners from around the world, and one of our um, our head of strategy globally actually firm strategy um, was talking about the importance of leadership through COVID, and he said. And he was, it was on a public thing. He said, Well, you know, think about the, the three things that um, you would notice about the people you observed as being the best leaders through COVID. And he was talking predominantly about politicians and state leaders and the like. So, what, what were the features of those people? Well, the first one was humility. So, they owned up to the fact they didn't know what was going to happen. Yes. That We're all riding this as fast as we can. And they recognized that they probably were going to get some things wrong as a result of that. Yes. The second was courage. So faced with all of that, they didn't just sit on their hands. Can you hear me all right, Chris? Can, I can hear you. Okay. They they didn't just sit on their hands. They they knew they had to make a decision and they had the courage to make the decision and talk about the decision that they were making, and the basis of it. And he said, and the final thing was, They didn't bullshit. They just told you the way it was and told you all the uncertainty about what was coming up. And to me, I biased, interpreted that as realism. And so I just found it fascinating that we would circle on the same areas with no, I mean, same organisation, but no connection and no awareness of the work we've done. And as I've spoken to firms around the world on cultural work they're doing, within PwC, it's really interesting how often you end up with some version of humility, some version of bravery or courage, particularly in conversations. We're not talking about do something challenging, particularly about the interpersonal element of courage. And then the third thing being something around resources and just practicality. Of life. Yeah, well, and I don't know, maybe that's a feature of where we are right now is that lots of uncertainty needs leadership, but we also need to get practical. And it resonates somehow for me against your question.
0: I wonder too, with that, it makes me think often in ethics when we talk about making decisions or choices. Um, we, we like to test those, whether it's a sunlight test, would you be happy with this being on the cover of the AFR, whatever that might be. But another test which is an interesting one is around could this become a universal, uh, you know, choice or, or decision, you know, mm-hmm. not, just, not just now in uncertain times but just more generally. Are they the kinds of qualities that we as human beings need to own and develop our own virtues but that we also need to be able to observe in others and trust. Does that actually generate trust? Mm. Yeah. Mm. I love it. It does in a way, doesn't it?
1: I think it does. And I have, I mean, being kind of uh, unfortunately also motivated somewhat by your own, uh, the novel nature of what you do and whether or not you've come up with anything (laughs) particularly innovative and definitely when we went through that process with the behaviours thought a lot to ourselves about is this just always true like are we just describing the human condition yes in doing this and do you know where I got to in the end of that was if that is the case then so be it because they actually are blooming important and particularly for me, the, the humility side of it. Like, I just so passionately believe that we all kind of conspire with one another to pretend we're flawless. Um,
0: and and goes, nobody
1: wants to feel like that.
0: Well, well, that goes back to the psychological safety.
1: It absolutely does. So does
0: the ask the questions, absolutely. you know, go around the, you know, the courage. I like to think of it as a confidence. Um, yep. and even to the reality, all, all those three go down to, the psychological safety, and then the other aspect, which I find um, has been lacking because of probably a lack of psychological safety, is accountability. Mm. Is the ability for people to own what they've done, take responsibility, you know, and like you said, speaking about the failures and feeling confident to say, mm. "I messed that up. Mm. I really did. I'm sorry." How do we how do we work together to fix that or prevent it in the future?
1: And and, look, another um, just critical kind of complexity to that as well, I think, is that, um, you know, what courage in conversations means to me versus what it means to you Mm. or humility versus what it means to someone from a different cultural background or from a different family upbringing or from just a different life experience, Um, you know, what's happened to them in the past. Yes. When they've shown humility and how that shaped their attitude towards it
0: yes. is
1: so like critical. And you know, sitting here as a um white English bloke, um, it was very, very important for us through that process to engage with as many different, you know, groups and communities within the firm to say, does this work? Like, does this actually resonate? Because if you think let's kind of deal with a kind of a typical It's not helpful in the fact it's a stereotype, but let's deal with this as a kind of concept of, so you're going to ask someone to have a courageous conversation. So what does that mean? That might mean challenging someone who's superior to you, or it might mean raising something that's uncomfortable for everybody in that conversation. There would certainly be cultural backgrounds where that is very, very different to Mm -hmm. the way that someone has been brought up it's not necessarily even culture it could be your family culture mm-hmm. if you like um, so what does that mean for them because you could actually be describing a behavior that is so counter to someone's upbringing that it's almost counterproductive like almost it, they shrink time. away yes. from, exactly yes. they shrink away from it or it harms them to feel yes. that that's the expectation and so you have to and so we spend a lot of time we've got you know what descriptions of what this means Mm. a lot of time thinking about that but Mm. like in the end it has to be your own right it and so we have to hear from lots of different people about what it means to them to share their stories not just be the same old person stood up there saying the same old stuff and everyone going well that's fine but that's you that's not me I'm not a partner or I'm not a bloke or I'm not Mm -hmm. the European guy who's you know Lived his life the way that he's lived it. So it's so critical that people are given the space to make that their own.
0: And that they um, have a Yes, they
1: ex- ex- exactly so right. And, and realizing that you might have just observed the most courageous conversation ever. And just a hand,
0: yeah, yeah. Correct.
1: Like you, hand you, hand you, just hand don't. Up. You yeah. do not know. And likewise, for like for me, like I, you know, as is. As is the human condition, you will think you know what people are like by having spent time with them, and like what their makeup is. But that doesn't mean, you know, I don't, I don't find myself feeling safe all the time just because I'm mm-hmm. the person talking about it. You know, I fear failure and judgment, and just in different ways to the next person. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly had to deal with that myself in my career, and still am. Yeah, um, but I read an amazing quote. In a book that I'm reading at the moment um, about kind of therapy and psych- psychology, um, yeah. which is, you know, a patient will not own an insight until they feel it in their bones.
0: Um, I guess on that we should we should really wind it up now. I figure that's about you know a 35 minute walk for someone to do it. <laughs> the wonderful stuff (laughs) that that you've offered thank you Sam thank you so much for sharing that with us
1: oh it was good fun likewise
0: and I wish you all the best